0: Well, good afternoon. It is always good to be with you, an honor to be with you, and I have some announcements on behalf of the university and seminary, and first and foremost, just want to convey our personal commitment that in this season of the institution, we are doing everything we possibly can so that we will be the school for the remnant. That means we do everything doctrinally, theologically, to affirm biblical fidelity to the inerrant Word of God, to never move from its sufficiency over every single discipline, Christ in all things, and all things for Christ in Scripture. This is our commitment, and that requires the greatest diligence in every area. And just on behalf of the institution, I want to say that we are committed to do all that we can to ensure that we will be the school for the remnant. And the Lord is really blessing these efforts, and I've been asked to share two wonderful bits of news that I pray will bless you. One is that on coming in, or perhaps when you leave, you may receive a little bit of a note about a testimony of one of our graduates who not only graduated from seminary, but at graduation, graduated to heaven, uh, the greatest graduation of all. He heard our vice president say, job well done. He heard Dr. MacArthur say, job well done. Then he got to meet me, and I said, good job. And then he got a job well done from someone far greater than all of us. His name is D.J. Matheson, faithful man of God, perfected now his ministry, was and is great. And there's a scholarship in his honor, Philippians 121 scholarship, and it is for any degree program at the seminary, uh, because of the generosity of donors, uh, from any degree from MDiv to DMIN. And it's for those particularly who are over 50 years of age, because DJ was an older student himself, and it's never too late to be the master's man. It's never too late to grow. It's never too late to be faithful. So that scholarship, just because of the generosity of donors, is for $10,000 a year. It is substantial. And we are thankful for all those who have invested deeply in our institution so that we can invest deeply in you. Along that line, a second piece of announcement would be that we have at the Master Seminary something called the Tyndale Center, which is devoted to training Bible translators to translate the Word of God across the world based upon our own project, which was the Legacy Standard Bible. And as you know, the Legacy Standard Bible, as translators, I was one of them, we put together a lot of notes. We try to compile a lot of information on the decisions on why we did what we did, and hopefully it's edifying. And so what we've done, again, through the generosity of donors, is begun to publish those notes for free. For everyone online, you can find a sample of this at Tyndale.tms.edu. That's Tyndale.tms.edu. And it'll be releasing in, in greater scope as the months progress. But you can see a sample already of what is initially done. And our prayer is that that would help translators and pastors and Bible students across the world know the Word of God better. The Lord is doing really amazing things Uh, at our institution and it's not because of us it's in spite of us and it's all because of him and so all the glory goes to Christ. Along that line we have a lot to cover in the word of God so will you join me in a word of prayer. Our God and Father I pray particularly for the pastors who have come for the men of God who have come here beaten down weary discouraged Lord, do a wondrous work in your word that you alone can, a wondrous work that you have ordained through the word, through the very intention of the text that we are in this afternoon. May the word be magnified as it magnifies the God of the word, and may it encourage and fortify the hearts of many. May it convict us as well. And ultimately put your grace, your sovereign grace, on display in its height and in its beauty. And may our eyes turn readily from ourselves and be fixed and fixed alone to you. May this time be won through the word of God that you have perfectly ordained and orchestrated. May it be shown to be all-sufficient and all the spotlight be shown on the majesty of you and your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. May our hearts' affections be fully captured to you, and may our joy be complete knowing your dynamic and breadth of the scope of your preserving work of the remnant. May all this happen, not for our sake, but ultimately for your honor. And it is in your name we pray. Amen. In talking to people about the theme for this year's Shepherds Conference, it concerns, as we well know, shepherding the remnant. And as this is mentioned, people are instantly, instantly captivated by the idea. And why is that? Why is that the case? Well, as we have heard throughout this time, to be sure, the breadth of this theme is truly breathtaking. From the beginning, from the fall. Satan, we know, believed that he had captured creation and captured mankind into his grasp. Well, what does God reveal in this crucial moment? There is a remnant. There is a remnant. Satan has not won. There is the line of the seed, which will culminate in the seed that will crush the serpent's head. And from the utterance of Genesis 3.15, we know there always is a remnant. And God has preserved that remnant. He has preserved it through the murderous intent of Cain. He has preserved the remnant through the diabolical schemes of Satan in Genesis chapter 6. He has preserved the remnant through a global flood and devastation through the line of Noah. He has preserved the remnant through Noah. Nation scattered across the world through one nation founded by Abraham and the patriarchs, the nation of Israel. He has preserved that nation through the exodus, through the wilderness wanderings, through the conquest, and even against and in spite of themselves. In the period of the judges, we know that everyone does what is right in their own eyes. But what happens next? The book of Ruth. And we learn there is a remnant. There is a remnant that believes and is faithful to Yahweh, both from Jew and Gentile. And God preserved the line. God continues things on through the line of kings, through Israel's history. Though many, many Israelites apostatize, there still is a remnant. And the prophets testify to that. And even when they are faced with judgment, scattered in exile across the face of the earth, there still is a remnant. And we see that in Daniel. And when they are brought in back to the land, in small in number, few they may be, but there still is a remnant. And we see that in Ezra and Nehemiah and prophets like Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi. And this progresses to the New Testament. And even though the nation of Israel as a whole rejects their Messiah, there still is a remnant. Jew and Gentile brought together in the church, preserved, there is a remnant. And not only is that preservation happening in the New Testament and in the early church period, despite persecution, despite oppression, despite opposition, it flows all the way from church history, as we see from the New Testament, the very end of it, to the time of the end. Antichrist launches global persecution, where it is for sure there will be death And for sure there will be destruction. And for sure there is the greatest risk of naming the name of Christ. And we wonder, could anyone withstand that? And that's the question at the end of Revelation 13. But what do we hear in Revelation 14? There is a remnant. God is preserved. God is preserved. And what do we then learn? This is the theme of the remnant, not just isolated passages, but one theme that runs from Genesis to Revelation, pervasive in the plan of God. Every generation, there is a remnant by divine decree, by divine design. This is breathtaking, but it isn't just the fact that this doctrine is breathtaking, that captivates and encourages us. It is what it means for all of us because we are part of that plan. And indeed, we know that ministry and we know that life is full of hardships. It is full of setbacks. In this world, we will have trouble. In this world, we have various trials and tribulations. As Paul says in First and Second Corinthians, we are spectacles of this world. We are the scum and the scourge of this world. We are afflicted. We are in distress. We are in hardship and beatings and often sleepless nights. And there are evil reports spread about us. And above all of this, we know that what labors us is what labored Paul. That there was this deep concern for our churches, for our people as we labored to have Christ be formed in them. There is weightiness in this life. But we also know this within all of that. There is always a remnant. And so we know God will hold us fast. Why? Because there is a remnant. And we know God will hold our people fast. Why? Because there is always a remnant. And we know that our labors, though in toil and though in setback and though with much discouragement, our labors are never in vain. Why? Because there is always a remnant. And one day, even more, one day we will see when Christ returns and he raises from the dead and raises up every generation of remnant from every nation, tribe, and tongue. From one horizon to the other horizon, the remnant will fill the earth And we know on that day, as prophesied in Psalm 22 and in Isaiah 53, the remnant, those raised from every generation, every nation, tribe, and tongue, will surround the Lord Jesus Christ in Jerusalem and they will declare his righteousness and they will declare his great salvation and they will thank him and worship him for so great a salvation. And it says in the text that he will see his seed and his soul will be satisfied. And on that day, when we see the remnant filling from one horizon to the other horizon from every nation, tribe, and tongue, we will know on that day the remnant, always small and few, always few in number, always minuscule, always the minority, at that day the remnant will be the absolute majority. And on that day we will know our work was never in vain. And even more than that, on that day, we will understand, we will understand that the success of salvation was never predicated on the size of the people, but always on the strength of the Savior. All glory goes to him. That, my friends, is the doctrine of the preservation of the remnant. That, my friends, is the glory of God's preservation, and it strengthens us. It gives us perspective. It fortifies us. It's worth delving into. And there is one text that amplifies, that showcases this doctrine as a multifaceted diamond in all of its dynamics, and that is First Kings 19, 18. Turn there with me. Turn there with me. Let us understand the fullness of the doctrine of the preservation of the remnant. By way of context, in a lot of ways, context here serves to prove one point and one point alone, that this passage, First Kings 19, verse 18, is a definitive text in unveiling the doctrine of God's preservation of the remnant and all of its dynamics. And we can see that early on from even the historical backgrounds. Why was the book of Kings written the book of Kings was written during the period of exile shortly thereafter because people had questions. They wondered, how did we get here? Why did we get kicked out of our land? Is this because God's promises failed? Is this because God failed? And the book of First and Second Kings assures us that God is the king. His promises have never failed. It is because of our sin. It is because of Israel's sin that they were launched out of their land. But God always preserves a remnant. That is the message of this book. And so in light of that, the book of 1 Kings opens, assuring the people of Israel, God's promises are yes and amen. You can see his kingdom promises in a, a sample version, in a taste of heaven, so to speak, in the opening chapters of this book. As Solomon's reign, the golden era of Israel commences. But we know that will not be, because Solomon is not perfect He is not the right man for the job, and there is sin still in the nation that must be rectified, and so the nation will splinter apart, and even though there is a downward spiral of the nation in its sin, God continues to showcase through it all. He reigns. His sovereignty is put on display as he preserves the stability, as his power is demonstrated, as his rule everywhere is manifested, as he judges and as he delivers, and that is seen in the progression of first and second kings and the place that we are in, this place of 1 Kings 19, is in the midst of God demonstrating the supremacy of his sovereign power. The supremacy of his sovereign power. This is God versus Baal and Ahab and Jezebel. And we know that God demonstrates, Yahweh shows, he is far above this false god, which is truly no god named Baal. God is the one that controls the rain, not Baal. God is the one who can go into the territory of Baal and do miracles there because Baal is nothing. God is the one that can raise someone from the dead even though Baal claimed to have control over life and death. God is the one, as we see in 1 Kings 18, that is in control of lightning, Baal's speciality. God, not Baal, Yahweh, not Baal, is the sovereign one. And within this, Elijah has an agenda. He wants to demonstrate something about God. And it isn't just his supreme power. It is also about his preservation of his people. That's why in 1 Kings 18, verse 21, Elijah doesn't just talk, he challenges the people. That's why in 1 Kings 18, verse 30, he summons the people to come near. That's why in 1 Kings 18, verse 31, he makes an altar out of the 12 stones representing the nation of Israel. And that's why in 1 Kings 18, verse 37... Elijah explicitly says, Answer me, O Yahweh, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Yahweh, are God, and that you have turned their heart back again. Elijah in this moment in 1st Kings 18 wasn't just intent on showing and having God show his supernatural power amen and amen that is true but what he also wanted was for God to launch a supernatural revival among his people Sometimes though expectations though set are not met and God definitely demonstrates his supreme power. We know that. But we also know this. Revival doesn't break out. Revival doesn't break out. We know what happens. That instead of revival, you have retaliation. That's what happens. 1 Kings 19, one through 2. Elijah hears what Jezebel says, and Jezebel's intent on killing him. You don't have revival. You have retreat in 1 Kings 19, 3-4, as Elijah has to run away. You don't have revival, you have redirection. As God redirects Elijah, not to Israel, but away from Israel, to Mount Horeb, where the law was given, where Israel was founded. And you have redirection as God must teach Elijah. And God asks Elijah, what are you doing here, Elijah? Earlier, Elijah said these words, it is enough now, O Yahweh, take my life. For I'm not better than my fathers. Not a little bit dramatic there, buddy. He then says, verse 10. I have been very zealous for Yahweh, the God of hosts. For the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, pulled down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left. And they seek my life to take it away. That's Elijah's attitude. That's his disposition. And so God teaches Elijah a lesson. And it's glorious, and it's dynamic, and it's deep, and it's profound. And it involves contrasting what happened in Exodus 34 as God passes by and He reminds Elijah, sometimes it's not always by might, sometimes it's not by what you expect. God can work in ways that defy your expectation. And so having demonstrated this in such a glorious manner, verse 13, God asks again, What are you doing here, Elijah? Did you learn your lesson? Verse 14. Then he said, I have been very zealous for Yahweh, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, pulled down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Same exact speech verbatim. Lesson not learned. (laughs) Reminds us of all of us, doesn't it? And while he didn't learn the lesson, what he did is provided an opportunity. He provided an opportunity for God to respond to the question, where is the remnant? Where is this remnant? Can you really preserve a people? This is the question posed by historical background. This is the question posed by the flow of the book. And this is the question posed by the immediate question of the text. Where is the remnant? This is God's opportunity to definitively express How he preserves his own. And so what we are going to see, based upon this opportunity, based upon the intention of the author, is in 1 Kings 19, 18, five features. Five features of how God preserves his own. Five features of how God preserves his own. And here is the first one. He preserves his own in their survival. Survival. He preserves the remnant in their survival. Notice the first word of the verse. Yet. Yet. This is a word of contrast. This is a word of antithesis. This is a word of in spite of. And in spite of what? Well, what we see in the immediate context is that Elijah was to anoint three individuals, Hazael, king of Aram, Jehu, as well as Elisha, because these three would leverage massive devastation upon the nation of Israel. They would leverage massive judgment against God's people. And that's historically true. If you look at the life of Hazael, the book of Second Kings records his exploits against the northern kingdom. It says in 2 Kings chapter 9, there was prolonged war against this nation. In 2 Kings chapter 10, it says that, uh, that Hazael conquered different parts of Israel's territory. And in chapter 13, it said that he continuously oppressed the nation. He was an international threat. An international scourge. One who devastated many and increased the body count and bloodshed that happened in Israel during this time. In fact, here's a simple way to just summarize it. When Elisha is anointing Hazael to be king, he says this. Well, first he weeps. He weeps. And Hazael doesn't know what's going on. He says, why are you crying? 2 Kings 8.12 Because I know the evil You will do to my people. This man is so chilling in his genocidal mania that the prophet weeps because he knows the atrocities this man will commit wholesale. How can you survive an international onslaught like that? Well, if you survive that, if you survive the international, God has another way. You can be killed domestically. That's Jehu. Now, we may be familiar with Jehu because he's a crazy driver. We know that. But one thing we might not remember is this, that Jehu, in order, for his own selfish purposes, he decides to eradicate not only Ahab and his line, but anyone who in any way, politically, socially, or religiously associated with Ahab. There was a national purge during the time of Jehu. And we know from history, and even later examples in history, how devastating that can be. You are being hunted down if you are suspected of being an Ahab sympathizer. Even if it's not true for the sake of argument. And so if you survive the international war, your own country will kill you. That's Jehu. And if it's not enough for international, and it's not enough that you escape the domestic, well then there's the directly divine. You've got Elisha walking around. And Elisha's ministry, one of the things that characterizes it is its breath, that God rules everywhere. Elisha wanders from Moab to Edom to Syria, all over the northern kingdom. He's just walking everywhere. And for some people, that's great, because he brings a blessing. For everybody else, it's not good, because he brings judgment. And so if you escape Aram and their international crusade against the northern kingdom, and you escape Jehu, who's trying to purge the entire nation, now you've got to escape the wandering prophet who's just walking around Israel bringing mayhem and death with him. That's the trifecta of judgment. How are you supposed to escape that? You've got judgment everywhere you go coming at you from different angles for different reasons and in different ways. How is anyone supposed to survive that kind of course? But God says, yet. Yet. And right there we learn everything we need to know. That in spite of all the odds, in spite of all the wrath, here is God's promise. I will bring you through. I will bring you through. God will bring his people through his wrath, through his judgment. The remnant will be preserved in their survival. And this truth, that the remnant will be preserved in their survival, this is is a truth that we see across Scripture. I love Psalm 66. It says this, You brought us through fire and water, and you put our feet on a broad place. If the water didn't drown you and the fire didn't incinerate you, God brought you through the extremes, the polar opposites of every kind of trial in life and he can set your feet on the broad place. He will bring you through. He will hold you fast. And we see that in the book of Revelation as already mentioned. That the Antichrist, in his massive, massive program of death and destruction, nevertheless, God will preserve a remnant. God will see them through. And Revelation reminds us though That it's not always physical preservation that takes place. We know that. We understand that. But it is the principle that is established that God will bring us through his wrath, through his judgment. And we know that to be true from John and Romans 8, that no one will snatch us from the Father's hand and that nothing can separate us from the love of God. And so, brothers, when we face trials of all sorts, when we face obstacles, that are insurmountable in our minds, when we are discouraged and beaten down, what do we tell ourselves? We tell ourselves this. One way or another, we will get through. One way or another, we will get through. Why? Because our God preserves the remnant in their survival, ultimately from his wrath. We know one way or another, we will make it through. That is God's Guarantee that is God's nature as He preserves the remnant. Well, He doesn't just preserve it in its survival, He preserves the remnant sufficiently. That's the second point. He preserves it sufficiently. Notice verse 18. Yet I will leave 7,000. Stop there. 7,000. On the one hand, as it has been commented on today, 7,000 is an exceedingly small number. In the best case scenario, in the nerdy world of population demographic studies, you got 3% of the population. That's really stretching a lot of assumptions. But most likely, it is less than 1%. Probably 0.023%, as was mentioned. That's true. This is far from the majority. This is the minority. This is even the minority. This is, like, endangered. In fact... I looked up, just because I was curious, how many animals are in an endangered species, like the red pandas of China. And upon looking it up, it said about 10,000. 10,000, there's less in Israel than the red pandas of China. (laughs) They're nearly extinct. That's what these guys are. We're not even close to the minority. We're not even endangered species. We're basically extinct. And it reminds us of this. Reminds us of this. We will never be the majority this side of glory. Never. And we often find ourselves, though always yearning and always thinking of the myth of the majority. We want our churches to be big. We want our churches and congregations to be large. And people try to do all kinds of attitudes of growth to facilitate that. Or we want a large influence, maybe on media or social media. And we think we can just reach out there and gather everyone to ourselves by whatever we do and whatever we say. Speaking of whatever we say, sometimes in our messaging, we try to articulate something to show that we're sophisticated, to show that we're the intelligentsia, to show that we should be approved and we should appeal and we should be accepted to by those around us, that they should look up to us, that they should come to us, that we can be all part of a big tent under us. And whether it be church growth, whether it be media, or whether it be our messaging, it is all under that myth of the majority. And we must remind ourselves we will never be the majority. We're basically extinct. What do you mean, majority? Can God allow a church to grow and be large? Amen. But that's not up to us. That's up to God. As it has been said, we care about the depth of ministry. Let God care about the breadth. The faster we pursue faithfulness and not fame, the better we are off. Brothers, most congregations, they're small. And that's not just okay. That's not just good. That's not just by design. That's a wonderful thing because God always uses the remnant. God loves the small. So should we. Love the remnant that God has preserved in front of you. God preserves sufficiently. And the number may be small, but on the other hand, 7,000. 7,000 is not just small, it is still yet significant. It is still yet significant. The number seven reminds us of the number of completeness. God has everybody he needs. God has everybody he requires. We are never alone. We are never alone. We should never act that way, and God does that not only to encourage us, but to confront us To confront us like he did with Elijah. Because everything in this verse is meant to contrast what Elijah said not only once, but twice. What does he say in verse 14? I alone am left. God says, no, you're not. There's still 7,000. There's still all that I need. Brother, sometimes we know we're in the minority, but we're proud of it. We are. We know we're in the minority. We know that we are one of the few left. And that is a cause for us to be proud. Look at me. I'm the lone voice in the wilderness. I am the hero. I'm the one that evangelicalism needs at the moment. Come look at me. I'm so by myself, I don't even have any followers on social media. (laughs) I don't even follow myself. I don't even know if that's possible. Maybe you're not just alone if that's the case. It could be also that you're obnoxious. <laughs> Brothers, we are not the hero. We are not alone. We are not the voice that the world needs. We're just one of many servants. That's all we are. Why? Because God preserves the remnant sufficiently and that means this we will never gain the majority and also we will never be a guru either and we need to be humble because our god preserves the remnant sufficiently well third of all god not only preserves the remnant to survive god not only preserves it sufficiently but god preserves it in its service in its service God tells Elijah, notice the next phrase, yet I will leave 7,000 Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal. What does it mean to bow the knee? What does it mean to do that act? What, What does that convey? What is the disposition of that? Well, fundamentally, we can prove pretty easily that this is the disposition of worship. This is the disposition of a life of service. Even in this book, Solomon, 1 Kings 8, verse 54, he, he, he's on his knees as he prays and gives supplication before Yahweh in total worship. And we see this phrase used in Psalm 22, where the world is worshiping God in that way. And we see that in Psalm 95, as it calls us to worship and bow down. This is a posture of worship, and we understand that. But it's not just any kind of posture of worship here. It's a specific message. It's a specific attitude. It's a specific disposition and mentality. In Judges chapter 11, verse 35, Jephthah, seeing his daughter come out, falls on his knees, bows on his knees. Why? Because he's desperate. He's desperate for the life of of his daughter in light of the foolish oath that he made. And the same thing goes in 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 13, as people are confronting Elijah. One man with some sense falls on his knees. Why? Because he's desperate to save his own life so that he's not immolated by the fire that his predecessors received. In Psalm 72, verse 9, it's not just desperation, it's Surrender as the nations bow before their Messiah. And it's not just about our own attitude about ourselves, but it is in reflection to God. It all comes together in this amazing passage in 2 Chronicles 7, verse 3. Listen to it. It says this. And all the sons of Israel, seeing fire come down, and the glory of Yahweh upon the house, they bowed down on the pavement with their faces to the ground. What? Does bowing the knee mean? It means this, that you are so overwhelmed, that you are so overcome with God, that you make him great and you make yourself minuscule. You bow before him because he is exalted and he is lofty and you are nothing. And you are so captured and enraptured by him that it captures not only your soul, but your very body. All of you is arrested to him. You could think of it this way, that our God is transcendent he is above all he cannot be contained and therefore we cannot contain ourselves we must show with every fiber of our being his supremacy and how much he has gripped us and how transcendent he is that's what's conveyed by this phrase and it's a lesson about the nature of worship it's a lesson about what true service to God is all about but in context here God says to Elijah, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal. All the knees that have not bowed to Baal. In other words, that kind of affection, that kind of adoration, that kind of dedication, they didn't give it to Baal. The sin that so easily entangles and ensnares, they were not entangled. They were not ensnared. Put differently, their affections were kept loyal to God. Their love for Yahweh never waned. Their service to the Lord never stopped. God preserved the remnant in their service. Here's the message. Here's the lesson, plain and simple. It's easy. You can finish well. You can finish well. I can finish well. Why? Because God preserves the remnant in their service. Brothers, I know we sing the hymn, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. We ask questions in our own heart. Will our love for God wane? Will it deviate? Will sin that is so alluring, so deceptive, it entrap us and ensnare us. And we hear story after story after story of people disqualified. And we think, how are we going to make it through this and finish well? Brothers, those stories should cause us to fear, as 1st Timothy 5 reminds us. But brothers, know this. Our God, His grace is sufficient so that He preserves the remnant in their service. You and I, we can finish well. Never forget that. Never fear in that way. And this truth comforts us. But even as it comforts us, it convicts us. It convicts us. You say, why? Because God intended it to convict Elijah. Remember, everything in this verse is meant to confront what Elijah said. Not just once, but twice. Verse 14, what does Elijah say? For the sons of Israel... Have forsaken your covenant, pulled down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. In saying these words, Elijah does two things. One, he elevates himself at Israel's expense. He props himself up by degrading and denigrating and comparing himself with all of Israel. And in that way, he became self-righteous. He became self-righteous not because he was thinking about God's righteousness and God's standard of righteousness. No, that would be true righteousness. No, he made up his own standard. His own standard of comparing himself with all the other Israelites. Saying, look, I'm the one who's very zealous, verse 14. I'm the one who's been that. Why? Because everyone else, they're all bad. They've all defected. They have faulty service. And in saying that, a second thing happened. Elijah ignored by broad-brushing all of Israel, that there was a remnant. And he should have been looking at them. And brothers, this illustrates a trap that we can fall into. Should we confront sin? Yes. Should we condemn idolatry? Yes. Should we debunk false teaching? Absolutely. But in there, there's a danger. There's an inherent danger. It's a trap where we think, I'm so glad I'm not like them. I'm so much better than them. I'm part of the remnant. I'm the frozen chosen. Look at me. And God said to Elijah, what are you talking about? Frozen chosen, all alone. 7,000 haven't bowed the knee to Baal. You're not alone, and you're not that good. God preserves the remnant. In their service. And we remember, sometimes we fixate so much on the problems out there. On the problems of the world. Or even the problems that are right in front of us. And we just look at all the negative, And we look at all that's going wrong. And, and there's space for that. I recognize that. But then we forget. We forget by fixating on all those other things. The people that God has preserved in their service. That are right in front of us. And we should be ministering to them. Not yelling at someone out there. Brothers, it's amazing. God preserves, by his grace, the remnant in their service. That means we can finish well. So let us finish well. Let us finish well. Not comparing ourselves to others. Not being consumed in our self-righteousness but shepherding those that are right in front of us, those that God is preserving in their service so that we all finish well. Because God preserves the remnant in their service. God doesn't just preserve people in their service. God also preserves, and this is the fourth point, people in their submission. People in their submission. Notice the last phrase of 1 Kings 19 verse 18. God leaves 7,000. Every mouth, every mouth that has not kissed him, that is Baal. What does it mean to kiss the Baals? What does it mean to kiss something at all in the Old Testament? The language is kind of strange to us. The language refers to one thing, the idea of allegiance, the idea of loyalty, the idea of alliance. Think about Psalm 2, kiss The son. That is an act of allegiance. That is an act of dedication. That is an act of alliance. That's what's going on there. In fact, you can even see it in 1st Kings 19. Elisha, as he is departing from his parents, he kisses them. He was allied with them. He had allegiance to them. But that allegiance stopped at that moment. And then he began to serve Yahweh. And serve Yahweh with Elijah. From one allegiance to another. This is all about loyalty. This is all about allegiance. This is all about submission. Submission. And back then that was a big issue. You say, why? Because when you have a national program by Ahab and Jezebel to eradicate anyone who believes in Yahweh, defection is a big deal. Defection is the major issue. And it wasn't just the major issue back in those days. It continues. The New Testament, we have Demas. He left because of the world. And in the future, the book of Revelation, we know with global persecution there are threats. But what has God revealed about his character? What has God revealed about what he does with the remnant? In this definitive verse, he has said this. I preserve the remnant in their loyalty. They don't defect. They don't bend. They don't break. Brothers, here's the amazing truth. It's not just that you can finish well. It's this. God preserves the remnant such that you will overcome the world. You will overcome the world. We know persecution is now. We know persecution in more intense form is coming. It's on the horizon. And there are many, there are many who fear. There are many who are nervous and think, in light of that kind of persecution, how can I withstand? How can I endure? How can I not compromise? How can I not break? How can I not bend? Part of what we must remember as God has revealed here is this simple truth. For as much persecution that is coming, God's preserving grace is always more. It is not just sufficient, it is lavishly more abundant, so that his remnant will not bend and will not break. God has left 7,000 that have not bowed the knee to Baal, nor any mouth that has kissed him. God preserves us in our submission. And that means we can be bold and we can be courageous, but we also need to watch ourselves. We need to watch ourselves. You say, how so? Well, because... This is meant to confront our friend Elijah for something that he said not just once, but twice. Opening line of verse 14. What does he say? I have been very zealous for Yahweh, the God of hosts. Look at me. I am very zealous. I'm very zealous. He emphasizes himself. And all of his human achievement. And therein is the mistake. Brothers, is it good to be zealous? Yes. Do we need to be bold? More than ever. But we need to get ourselves out of it. We need to rid ourselves from it. We need to have the attitude that Paul describes in Galatians 2. It is not I, but Christ in me. We know that. That must be our mentality. Why? Because God is the one that preserves the remnant in their submission to him. Elijah, you're the one who's zealous? Like, it's all you and your effort? No, God says it's me. For as much as this truth is so amazing and, and it's so comforting that God preserves us in our submission to him. For as much as that comforts our soul because it means that we won't break our bend. For that very reason, by the same token then, you can never be about yourself. We know we're weak. We know we would bend. We know we break. The only thing that keeps us is the grace of God. That's it. So if that's the case, and since that's the case, you can never say, I'm the one who's zealous. All of it is not about ourselves. Rather, it is about the sovereign grace of God alone. That's what's going on here. And that brings us to our final point. Point five. It's not just that God preserves the remnant to survive. It's not just that God preserves the remnant sufficiently. It's not just that God preserves the remnant in their service or their submission. It is this. It is this. That God preserves the remnant by sovereign grace. By sovereign grace. That's the fifth and final And most important point, we have seen a lot of contrast in this verse. Elijah said, I'm the only one. God says, no, you're not. And Elijah has this attitude of self-righteousness. I'm better. And an attitude that is completely self-centered and self-consumed. Look at me. I'm so zealous. And God debunks all of it. But there is one contrast. There is one contrast that rules them all. One contrast that ascends above all of them. One contrast that gravitates and pulls all together and drives and undergirds and grounds every single thing in this verse. It is the contrast of the main verb between verse 18 and verse 14. And being the contrast of the main verb means it's the main purpose, the main thrust, the main thing. And you say, what is that contrast? Look at verse 14. Read the words carefully. Elijah says, and I alone am left. But what does God say in verse 18? I will leave 7,000. Here's your problem, Elijah. You thought, you thought it was I'm the one who's left. I'm the one who's left. Do you want to know why, Elijah, that is so wrong? Do you want to know why you're so mistaken, so delusional, so discouraged, so dysfunctional, so despairing? Do you want to know why your attitude of superiority and self righteousness and self centeredness is so wrong? It's the same reason why what is really happening is going on. Why God, why everything has been preserved in their survival sufficiently, in their submission and in their service. It is not because, Elijah, I have left. That's not what is going on. Elijah, you are nothing powerful. You are nothing mighty. You are nothing righteous. You are nothing special. You are nothing. That's what you are. That's what God conveys in this contrast. And what God says is it was never I'm the one who's left. God says, no, I have left. That's why everything happens the way it does. It was never human effort at all, Elijah. That's where you went wrong. It has always only exclusively and singularly been the sovereign grace of God. That's it. That is what is going on here. And in the book of Kings, where this book celebrates the sovereignty of God, where this book celebrates how God is the king, this is the declaration that God's sovereignty is not just seen in that he shows his supernatural power to prevail against polytheism, which is nothing. Amen to that. But it is this, that the glory of God And his supremacy and his sovereign reign is equally seen in how he preserves his people against all the odds through everything in their submission and service to him. That's the masterpiece of his grace. And so, brothers, do you want to endure to the end? Do you want to have be established, and be preserved in your submission and service sufficiently and even in your survival, there is but one thing to do. Fix and fixate on the sovereign grace of God. Cling to that and that alone and we'll make it home. In fact, that's why there's a remnant to begin with. The whole point of the remnant is the whole point of the remnant is to magnify the sovereign grace of God. That's the point. So let us abide by it. As we have shown and as we have seen, this passage, it's definitional. It's definitional. It codifies what it means that God will preserve his own. He will preserve them to their survival. He will preserve them sufficiently. He will preserve them in their service and submission and always by their sovereign grace. And this message, because it is so definitional, it doesn't just stay in the book of 1 Kings. It goes throughout Scripture. The reverberations of it are everywhere. And in Romans 11, in a discussion of whether God has forsaken his people Israel, he reminds us there always is a remnant. There always is a remnant. In Romans 11, he says that to us. And that remnant eventually will become an entire nation. But what does he say in Romans 11? He says, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And where did he get that from? First Kings 19 verse 18. I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal. Did Paul understand the point of this text? Yes, he did. And what he shows is that this truth, what this text declares, is eternal truth that endures for all time. It endures to the end of ends and never ceases. And therefore, it endures in our time as well. So brothers, do not be disheartened. Do not be disheartened when trials come our way and we are struggling. There is a remnant preserved by grace. Do not be disillusioned thinking that you're the hope for all mankind or that you are the only one left or you're better than everyone else. There is a remnant Preserved by grace. Do not be discouraged about your people. There is a remnant preserved by grace. And don't despair when you are in the dark times of your life and there is exhaustion and struggle. What do we remember? There is a remnant preserved by grace. God is glorified as King of kings and Lord of lords and his amazing, amazing power not only to prevail against polytheism which is nothing but he showcases that glory as he preserves his own people against all the odds through it all in their survival sufficiently in their submission and service to him by his sovereign grace so we keep pressing on as he preserves us. And we keep shepherding the flock of God that he preserves by his grace. And let us keep doing that till the day he calls us home or he returns till that very day that with our eyes of eyes, we see because of the Lord Jesus Christ, that this remnant, small and few, always the minority will become the absolute majority Shall we pray? Our God and Father, thank you for your preserving grace. Were it not for you, we would never survive. We would perish. We are but dust. And so, O oh God, we depend on you. O oh God, we magnify you because of your profound sovereignty. And it is your grace alone, singular and exclusive, that sustains us. And we worship you for this. And we relish it. And we rest in it. May our hearts be strengthened, not for our own sake, but for the magnification of the Savior, whose salvation is never because of the size of the people, but with the strength of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.